Welcome to Now Appalachia. The Appalachian region covers 13 states in the U.S. and over 25 million people call the region home. This podcast profiles the authors and publishers with connections to Appalachia and how the region influences and impacts their creative work. And now, here's your host, author and Appalachian resident, Elliot Parker. And hello, friends. We welcome you once again to another episode of Now Appalachia, heard here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Appalachia is our focus, and we focus on the authors and outstanding publishers that have connections to the region, and we talk about how the region influences and impacts their works. I'm your host, Elliot Parker. It's great to have you with us. We are talking nonfiction today on the program and a little bit of investigative journalism nonfiction on the program today. Uh, We are going to be speaking shortly with Jessica Weibel. She is the author of the new book called Dead Letters, Delivering Unopened Mail from a Pennsylvania Ghost Town. And if the title is not intriguing enough for you, I can promise you uh, that the book is. And Jessica Weibel joins us today. She is a freelance writer and a reporter. She's also the founding editor for the Watershed Journal, which is an inclusive regional literary magazine for the Western Pennsylvania Wilds. She leads two writing groups. One is called the Writer's Block Party and also the Rebecca M. Arthur's Young Writers Group. And she lives with her husband and two boys in Brookville, Pennsylvania. And we're delighted to have her on the show to talk about her new book and what it's all about. So, Jessica, welcome to Now Appalachia. Good to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just so interested in this book. And I had heard about this book right before it came out. And uh, it was such an intriguing story. And I can't wait to talk to you about it. And I guess what's so intriguing about it is that, that this is all true. And this is sort of like um, uh, an investigation that uh, had layers to it, almost like peeling back an onion. And as the more you got involved with it and started getting involved with what we're going to talk about uh, today in regards to the story and, and the focus of the book, you just were kind of like peeling the layers of an onion. And so I can't wait to, to talk to you about it. But I want to ask you first about how this all got started. And there was a woman who kind of got you onto this uh, issue and kind of focused on this topic about these dead letters. And her name is Joan Swigart. And if if Joan were to walk into the room right now, uh, what would she be like? What would we notice about her? Joan is so, she unfortunately passed away um, in 2020. But Joan was so unpredictable in what she would say, uh, what she might be interested in what she might find potential in. She was the type of person who, and she liked to say this, that she could walk the length of Main Street uh, just talking with people and come up with stories, um, you know, things that would be infinitely interesting and exciting to write about and think about because everybody had a story. And uh, oftentimes she would be sitting in her, you know, optometrist office waiting for her appointment and striking up conversations with people and becoming so fascinated by, you know, what their goals and interests are and um, what careers they did, what they were excited about, and, and she would become excited about it. So she was, she was definitely a people person, but she was not the type to kind of, uh, you know, placate. She was the type to kind of stir things up and, um, you know, and, and find out what was fascinating and what was interesting in any given situation. 
So she was a former reporter also for the Courier Express. She was an award-winning writer and photographer. She had a career that started all the way back uh, in the uh, early 1960s, uh, spanning up until recently. And you all struck up a friendship, and you write about that. Uh, but this whole idea for the book started when she approached you with a stack of old letters. So what were those old letters? What were in them? And what did you do when she gave them to you? You know, I had no idea what she had given me when she, the, the day that I went to her house and she said, I have something for you. Joan loved to give me story ideas and she would pitch me stories um, and, and mostly of local interest. But when she brought the letters out, it was just this um, like clear, transparent plastic bag full of old uh, documents, old mail, a lot of it. And some of it was kind of open and you know, scattered around without envelopes and advertisements, old advertisements or invoices or receipts. And it had come from an old general store and post office in Howe, Pennsylvania, which is an unincorporated village just a couple miles north of Brookville on Route 36. And that post office and general store is no longer there. It was torn down. Uh, and it was torn down around late 80s, early 90s. Um, and Joan was driving by one day as they were getting ready to demolish this old building and she got curious and she thought, well, maybe there's some, cause she was remodeling a, a house at the time. And she thought that she might be able to salvage, um, something for the house. So she went looking around and asked the people uh, who were getting ready to demolish the house, uh, if she could take a look, they said, sure. And in the corner upstairs in this box, she found all of these old letters and documents. And what caught her interest in particular was that some of the letters were not opened and they were very old. They were dated, you know, 1902, 1905, 1910. And she thought, wow, these letters were never delivered. What, what's the story behind that? Why would they have been kept here and never delivered? So she asked if she could take them and they said, sure, they were just going to burn them anyway. And she took them home, kept them for years and years, always meant to do something. One of many projects that she uh, had in mind to investigate and write about and, um, and just never got around to it. And then um, through our circumstances and meeting and the relationship that we formed as kind of, uh, you know, journalism buddies. Um, Joan decided that I would be the one to take over this mystery and, um, see what I could find out. So when you, well, before we get to that, the, the time period of the letters, I think you write, uh, is between I think, 1902 and 1910, as you started to get into it, that was about the time frame uh, of the stack of letters, uh, uh, that you were looking at, um, and I know this kind of jumps a little bit ahead into the story, but as I was reading your book, the first thing I kept thinking about is, as you got the stack of letters is, and you address this later on, but why weren't those letters delivered? Why, why did the, 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 the owner of the store um, not deliver them or not take them to the post office or not give them to the postman when he came? Why did they not get delivered? And that has, that gets into a whole history of, the postal service and especially in rural places, the transition to um, like rural free delivery and this great American civic push to be able to get people mailed to their doorstep, which is when you think about it and reflect on it, an incredible phenomenon of like 
just, uh, you know, government cooperation to make sure that this was something that could happen. And uh, typically, you know, we take it for granted that it does happen, that the letter starts at one place, maybe across the ocean and ends up right in our mailbox, right by our doorstep. Um, and so it does seem really unusual. Why wouldn't these things be mailed? Uh, and the answer is probably not going to be fully recognized or resolved because the owner of the post office has passed away. He passed away uh, in 1939. His name is George Gailey. And, um, and it was unusual for those letters to be there. It's the, he, what he should have done with them, letters that were maybe undeliverable. So that's one possible scenario that the letters were undeliverable uh, for whatever reason that they were not addressed to the right address or um, there's not enough information. And in fact, one of the letters I did find had the wrong address and I was able to resolve why that letter was not delivered. And that's all in the book, uh, this kind of journey. But what he should have done with a letter like that, uh, that had the wrong address on it, he should have sent it to the central office, uh, the dead letter office, which is just such an intriguing uh, department. But uh, he should have sent it to the dead letter office in Washington, DC, which was the central office where all mail that was undeliverable would go. And then dead letter uh, clerks or sleuths, as I refer to them, would um, try to figure out, you know, where this mail is supposed to go. And they would get all kinds of mail and packages and things, you know, some of which would be very valuable. Um, and some of those should only be valuable in terms of, you know, sentimental reasons or as a correspondence. Um, and then they would try to piece together, okay, where was this meant to go? And what, what are the missing pieces to the puzzle to get it where it needs to be? Um, so it's possible that the letters were undeliverable because the address, at least one of them was. Um, and then it's possible that some of the letters were not delivered because the intended recipients had already moved on. And they were, uh, what I found was that um, in this area of Pennsylvania, timber was a big industry. And uh, when the timber goes out, when the timber runs out, you know, workers move on. So they kind of flock to these areas and boarding houses spring up, sawmills. Um, and then once there isn't any work, they move on to the next place. So there is another letter that I found where the intended recipient, um, was in Brookville for a time or in Howe for a time near Brookville uh, and then ended up moving on to Passaic, New Jersey to work in a textile mill. And so it's likely or my theory would be that that letter was not delivered because that person had already left the area and left no forwarding address. Um, and then there are some that it's just a a plain old mystery still why that letter did not get where it needed to go. In fact, some of them the envelopes were sealed. Um, some of them, the envelopes are open. Somebody had read it and they just left the letter and walked away for whatever reason. It, it was fascinating. And I'm so glad to, to hear you talk about that. You know, we take for granted today, you know, if we need to leave a forwarding address, you know, we just go online and do it, or we just walk down to our post office in our community, fill out a form and it's taken care of. But, you know, as you mentioned, things were so different back then. And and the transient population of Pennsylvania at that time, as you mentioned, people moving in and out, you know, there's a constant flux of, of people coming and going. Uh, it was just really, really fascinating to, to see why those hadn't been delivered. But I want to go back to the letters themselves. 
when you started looking through them, what were some of the things that were in them? What were some of the contents of the letter? Were that were they, you know, updates about what people were doing? Were they romantic in nature? What was some of the content of the letters themselves as you started looking through this stack that Joan had given you? Hmm. I think the first most surprising thing about these letters, which, like I said, I can't really describe, like the excitement of opening a letter that's over a hundred years old that no one had ever opened before. I mean, it was just an incredible thing, opportunity to be given. So, um, so after I did that and went through all the letters and kind of took stock of what I had, the most surprising thing was that um, in this small Pennsylvania rural uh, lumber town, there were letters from all over the world in different languages. So, I had uh, three letters in Italian, uh, I had one letter in Hungarian, and I had one letter in Yiddish, which I didn't even recognize what Yiddish looked like. Uh, and so, you know, I saw these, to me, very unusual characters uh, in terms of the writing, and I had no idea what I was looking at in terms of, you know, the story behind um, this correspondence that was lost. Then some of the letters were very local. They were, uh, you know, uh, one of them was a name that I recognized from around town, uh, a surname that was kind of a common uh, name around. So um, that one I could kind of place a little bit in terms of I knew at least where to start looking um, to find descendants because that was a big part of this uh, journey was to try to find out as much as I could about each letter and then deliver the letter to a living descendant um, as kind of a resolution to these mysteries. Um, and so some of them, you know, one letter was from a 13 year old girl to her aunt. Um, one was uh, to a little girl na uh, named Ada. Um, and one was a business letter from what uh, turned out to be a military career man um, home uh, to this area. Um, and uh, a mother to a daughter, um, all kinds of, like I said, all kinds of surprising stories. No great uh, confessions or revelations or <laughs> famous, you know, long lost letters of very famous Americans or anything like that. But what I love about the, the letters uh, and this snapshot of our history is that it is very much about like the stories that often go untold in our American history, um, which gives greater context when placed in our story of America. And, you know, these stories of immigrants populations and immigrant families, um, the stories of early settlers and, you know, um, their, their kind of journey uh, in uh, Taunton, Massachusetts, for example, and then settling in Brookville in these lumber towns. Um, so it's just such a great variety of storytelling. And you mentioned that you reached out to some of the descendants, uh, the ones that you could find uh, connected to these letters. What was their reaction when you reached out to them and said, hey, I have a letter from, you know, your great great grandmother or your, you know, great uncle or whoever it might be from 1905. 
uh, and I'd like to give it to you or, or connect you back with that uh, letter. What was what was their reaction? What was that moment like when uh, you reached out to them and said, hey, I've got something that you I think you'd like to see? It's a very unusual call to make to someone <laughs> um, because it really is just cold calling people, um, you know, trying to get in touch and saying, hey, I have what I think is a piece of your ancestry, of your history. Um, and I was, I was fortunate in that most people, you know, didn't just kind of turn me away as some kind of scammer or someone with like more nefarious intentions. Most people um, were genuinely very interested and curious. And I did send them copies of the letters first digitally so that they could see them. Um, and, and the reactions were mixed. You know, there are some people who are so connected to their family history because it, the stories that have been passed down from their parents or their grandparents, um, they're very connected to it. The, their ancestors whom they've never met feel like real people to them. And so there was one woman in particular who, uh, when I sent her the, the letter and talked to her about it, she just sent me an outpouring of information about her family, photographs, you know, all of these treasured, um, intimate artifacts that she'd kept from her family story uh, that she shared with me. And, and this letter that I was able to provide was just kind of another piece to that um, tapestry. And the beautiful thing about it is when I read that letter to her, her name is Camille, uh, and I read a lot about her in the book. Um, and I read the letter from, I think it would have been her great, great grandmother, Sophia. She says, oh yeah, that sounds like her. Um, a woman whom, whom she never met, but she'd read enough letters from her, you know, other letters that she'd had and uh, so there was like a familiarity there, which was really sweet to see. Um, others, there were there was another one um, who, when I contacted him, he had no knowledge of his family history at all. Uh, there was no connection to it. Um, you know, people did not, and and I I can identify with this uh, in some respects with my own family history. You know, there are times where people just don't talk about uh, Im their immigration story. They don't talk about the fact that they were not, you know, uh, living in America for generations upon generations, uh, that they had just come over or their parents had just come over. You know, they wanted to assimilate as soon as possible or or for whatever reason. Um, and so so there are some who this was one of the only pieces of their history that uh, their family history that they had. And um, so I think that there was probably, you know, it took some time to process that and maybe, maybe it sparked some more curiosity, I hope, uh, in learning more about, you know, each person's family story. You're listening to Now Appalachia here on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. We're speaking with author Jessica Weibel about her book, Dead Letters, Delivering Unopened Mail from a Pennsylvania Ghost Town. And we'll come back to the book uh, uh, in just a second. But uh, Jessica, I was reading uh, an interview uh, that, that you gave um, uh, back to the Courier Express newspaper. And uh, one of the things that, that you said is that you don't really 
characterize yourself exclusively as a history writer, even though this was kind of uh, a history project uh, that you, you you like to write poetry and, and you like writing fiction, but you consider yourself a journalist. And I was just wondering how how does being a journalist or, or writing in that style, which is a little different from writing poetry and fiction, but 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 being a journalist first and that kind of being your primary profession, how did that help you with a project like this in terms of taking this on, categorizing the letters, writing the draft? How, how was being a journalist and having that set of writing skills and that background, how did that help you uh, with putting this book together? Such a great question. And I think that part of the story of Dead Letters for me personally, and it's not a deeply personal book in that regard, but I think the part that kind of comes through and is important to come through is that Joan saw something in these letters that nobody else saw. And she saw something in me that I didn't see in terms of what I was capable of doing. Um, I really, I wouldn't say resisted, but I was, I was reluctant to take this on because I was not credentialized as a historian and, and I had never done anything like this. Um, digging into old documents at, on ancestry.com going to the courthouse and looking through land deeds and, you know, all of these things that someone who's trained in that, it would be kind of, um, they would be very oriented in terms of how to begin this journey. Uh, so I, it took me a couple years before I even started, but what I did have the wherewithal to do, and maybe this was uh, my experience in local journalism coming into play was to uh, document everything that was happening as it was happening um, in my experience. So even before I knew that I was going to write a book, even before that I was capable of, uh, you know, completing this journey of investigation into the past, I had been um, interviewing Joan, um, taking notes of all of those experiences, you know, recording our time together. And, uh, and then, when I went through all the letters, I did have the wherewithal to organize them in a way that, you know, to be able to determine, okay, this is a document that's more like, uh, or this is more junk mail versus uh, this is more personal mail. And here's the approach of what I need to do in order to start looking into that. Um, and then again, just writing about the experience of what I was finding and while it was fresh in my memory to do that. Uh, and then in terms of the investigation and getting started with that, I started with George Gailey's family. And I just honestly got very lucky with uh, that because Alice Gailey, who is a descendant, um, uh, distant relative of George Gailey, she was a family historian. Like, you know, I think a lot of families have that family historian who kind of uh, keeps all these artifacts knows the whole story of this family and especially if it's an American family you know coming to America and that story um, maybe sends out newsletters maybe hosts family reunions and coordinates that and that was Alice so she and she was good enough to post everything publicly online sharing this family story so that other people who had a connection to the Gailey family could uh, put you know put things together and put everything into context so I was able to really learn very quickly from um, from her how to access like with ancestry.com, how to look at those family trees and how to determine 
okay, who has like cross-referenced the documents that people are posting on those public family trees with documents, you know, verifying it with um, actual primary source documents, census records, birth certificates. And then anybody who's ever done anything like this knows that that information is not always 100% reliable, even the primary documents, because, uh, you know, the person taking the census might uh, not hear <laughs> the uh, through an accent or whatever, they might misspell the name. And so um, they might hear things differently, or someone might not be uh, perfectly honest about certain details of their lives as they're as someone's tracking their census records. So there can be inconsistencies there. Um, so it's really just kind of navigating that and trying to find the best information possible that fits within the context of, you know, starting with what you know for sure, and then really uh, very deliberately building from there. Then the the other part of this, the other piece of this is placing this individual story and all these documents from this, you know, one person or family uh, within a larger context, a historical context, uh, either locally or, you know, even broader. Um, so stories where um, someone's had immigrated from Northern Italy, for example, I needed to, I knew that I needed to look at what was happening you know, broadly in America and in Northern Italy that was bringing people over, bringing immigrant uh, young men, young laborers over to America. So, you know, finding that information and then specifically Pennsylvania. So the Yiddish letter, for example, um, finding that there, uh, it, there had appeared to have been a Jewish man, Charles Zeiger, living in a very rural place in Pennsylvania. And so understanding, okay, where there are Jewish populations in rural Pennsylvania at this time? And if so, you know, where, where were the houses of worship? Where were the fraternal organizations? Um, and, and even looking into those historical societies, local historical societies to make contact and to be able to understand, okay, do they have any information about these families? I didn't have a ton of luck with with that with the book, but I did have some people who were very helpful in pointing me towards resources that way too. The title of the book we're talking about today on Now Appalachia is called Dead Letters, Delivering Unopened Mail from a Pennsylvania Ghost Town. Jessica Weibel is our guest today. And uh, back to the book for just a second, Jessica, one of the things I loved about it, and I know Sunbury Press uh, was your publisher for this book, um, is you included photographs, both, you know, on the front cover and inside the book. And uh, just picking out a few of them on page 100 and 101, we have a picture of uh, Sarah Agnes Hopkins. We have a picture of Sophia Eliza Sims. We have a picture at the bottom of, of Agnes Jane, otherwise known as Janie Dixon Davis. Um, so a lot of pictures kind of pop up in the, in the middle of the book on through the second half of the book. And I was wondering, how did you choose those photos? Which ones to put in there? Did Sunbury Press make recommendations on which ones to choose and where to put them? What was that like? Because I, I really feel like you know seeing those, seeing some of those people uh, pictured in the book that you kind of write about and refer to, really kind of completed the circle in terms of of being able to to visualize what was going on. I just wondered. Did, how much input did you have? Was it collaborative with Sunbury Press? How did you determine uh, what pictures were going to get featured in the book and on the front cover? Yeah, hats off to Sunbury for being willing to do that because it is an extra, you know, expense and layout to add those images in there. 
And, and my publisher really, you know, they asked me, do you have images? And I hadn't even thought of including those. Um, but I had accumulated uh, photos either from descendants who had them or, uh, like I said, online in these public platforms, these public uh, genealogy platforms. Um, and so, so it was really, you know, taking stock of what I had and some very just said, okay, what do you have? Um, send along some of the images that you've collected so far. And, and then they laid them out. I, I had, I think most of what I had in terms of like re relating to specific people who were letter writers or letter recipients, most of them did end up in the book. In fact, I can't think of any that did not. Um, and I didn't have a lot of multiple portraits, you know, it was typically I had one portrait of each of these people. There was one Charles Zeiger that I got from a newspaper. Um, so that was where I got that one. And luckily uh, for the Zeiger family, there were actually a lot of photos um, in the newspaper. I think two of them ended up in the book. So um, so yeah, I can't say that I, I had the luxury of being very deliberate about what we were choosing and what we were putting in. But when we did have uh, portraits, we did add them. Yeah. So as we finish up our conversation today, Jessica, if uh, anyone wants to get in contact with you uh, to talk about your book, Dead Letters, or to find out more information about uh, the writing groups that you're in charge of or what you're up to as a journalist, how can they get in contact with you? Where can they find you, first of all? And then how can they get copies of Dead Letters? Where can they get copies of your book? My website is Jess Weibel Author. Um, and so JessWeibelAuthor.com is a great place to kind of see the book trailer and see more about what the book is all about um, uh, and get in contact with me through that page. Um, and then my email is jweibel at gmail or jweibel44 at gmail.com. So that's a great place if you've got, you know, other questions or inquiries. Um, and then in terms of the Watershed Journal, there's so much, and I know um, it's hard to get into everything, but there's so much in terms of regional publishing and readership that the Watershed Journal has to offer as a literary nonprofit for Northwestern Pennsylvania, what we call the um, Western Pennsylvania Wilds. So the, a great place to check out more about our regional publishing and readership would be the watershedjournal.org. Um, and you can get all kinds of uh, access to our literary calendar, blog, um, and um, exclusive uh, content from our literary magazine, local writers, all of that. We've had the pleasure of talking with author Jess Weibel today. She's a freelance writer and reporter. She's the founding editor of the Watershed Journal, and she also leads two writing groups, one called the Writer's Block Party and the Rebecca M. Arthur Young Writers Group, and she is most importantly the author of the book we've been talking about today, Dead Letters, Delivering Unopened Mail from a Pennsylvania Ghost Town. And if you, if you like nonfiction and, and you like true stories and you like uh, learning about, about uh, sort of a uh, a mysterious uh, set of individuals that uh, that Jess kind of stumbles upon um, as she gets those letters from a friend. Uh, it's just a great book. 
really, really interesting, really, really uh, informative, and it is something that you want to add to your to be read pile. So, Jessica, uh, thanks so much for spending some time with us today on Now Appalachia, and we appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. This was great. We want to take a moment as we finish up on this episode of Now Appalachia to give a special shout out and a thanks to the executive producer of Now Appalachia and the producer and executive producer of all the podcasts you hear on the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Her name is Pam Stack. So Pam, thanks for all the support uh, that you provide all of us on each and every podcast here on the network. We also want to remind you that this is a copyrighted podcast that is owned and operated by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. And that is going to do it for us this time on Now Appalachia, but please come again next time. And in the meantime, stay well and see you someplace soon, I hope. You've been listening to Now Appalachia. This is a copyrighted podcast owned and operated by the authors on the Air Global Radio Network. For questions or comments about this program and to learn more about the host, Elliot Parker, and his books, visit his website at www.elliotparker.com. Stay tuned. More outstanding podcasts are coming your way next from the authors on the Air Global Radio Network.